freedom and censorship can't exist in the same world. And that's true whether it's the government or private corporations who do the censoring. Hi, I'm Ron Coleman, and welcome to the Coleman Nation podcast. It's a show where I sit down with guests to discuss the future of free expression and thought in our interconnected world. Here, we will focus on issues involving social media, cancel culture, and free expression that everybody who cares about ideas or freedom should be wrestling with. Today, Josh Hammer is joining us, and this is really very interesting for me how, how it's worked out, and I'll explain to you why in a second. Uh, one of the things we don't do in the Coleman Nation is introduce the people who are interviewed because that chews up time. I remember when I used to go to CLEs and it would be like a 45 minute session and each panel member would get a five minute, Josh, you've probably had this too, as a lawyer, when you have to do continuing legal education, when the the, the chairman of the the panel, uh, you know, speaker, director guy or gal introduces each speaker for 10 minutes and then, and it's all there in the in the printed materials anyway. Ron, I'm going to get PTSD if you mention CLE one more time, to be honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> well, not only that, but here it's Josh Hammer, who everyone in the world knows who he is, and you can look him up. But the funny thing is, you know, so the theme of the of, of my podcast is in the broadly, broadly, but it ultimately I'm able to bring the conversations around to this. The topic of free speech on the Internet, censorship, cancel culture. And what I wanted to do was to find the place where this shakes hands with your common good originalism. But then doing a, the, that modicum of preparation that I'm famous for, I find out that you're actually counsel and policy advisor for the Internet Accountability Project, of which I am something also. but something much less. I'm on some kind of, you know, I don't know, mail group or something. But this is obviously something that you and, I, and our good friend Will Chamberlain, and of course, Mike Davis, have been discussing quite a bit. It's an incredibly important issue. I mean, if we, Ron, if we don't figure out how to properly regulate and that's where we're at and i'm sure we're going to get into the details of this obviously but if we don't get to the point where we can properly regulate what is the 21st century equivalent of the old public square then there is no hope for the future of this country there's frankly no hope for the future of civilization we need to have places where we can all kind of congregate together and converse with one another where we can have our, our ideas be heard um, and, you know, just the, the increasing um, rapidity, I mean, the incredibly, incredibly breakneck pace at which the big tech oligarchs have kind of escalated their censorship regimes over the past couple of years, it really kind of necessitates um, that we take imperative action. And uh, yeah, no, I mean, I, it, it, you know, with our friends at IAP, with Mike and Will, specifically what happened for me was, um, this is this is already an issue I was thinking about. It was really an issue I started thinking about in earnest, to be honest with you, after uh, Senator Josh Hawley in his first year of the Senate in 2019, I kind of immediately started talking about Section 230 um, and then antitrust and all, and all that. But really kind of the impetus for me, I was already thinking about it, but last October, what 
um, you know, what Facebook and Twitter did to the New York Post over the Hunter Biden files with, with respect to the, to the laptop. Sure. That that right. was, you know, to me, I called that the I, I called that big text Pearl Harbor attack. That 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 was yeah. war, and uh, you know, I, I I after that, I texted Mike. I texted Mike Davis, and I said, "This is insanity. I want to get involved with IAP." So here we are. Here you are, and and there's so much that we could that we could talk about. But I actually did find in your in your seminal public discourse article a reference to to this issue because you know, I mean, you mentioned a second ago regulate what has become the public square what you really mean in fact is to is to deregulate it because what libertarians have failed to uh, to acknowledge and they've the stubbornness on this has been the intellectual dishonesty has been mind-boggling is that a constriction of freedom and a regime of regulation can exist even if it isn't the state as as we think of, as we thought of the state through the 20th century, that's doing the regulate, that's doing the regulating. We live in a system now that is highly regulated. It's just regulated by unaccountable, undemocratic, and high, and very, very interested in politically involved institutions. Yeah, no, look, I mean, there is just this huge, divide, honestly. Uh, and it's a divide that you and I see kind of on, on right of center Twitter all the day, right? Um, between kind of, um, I, I guess we call them the more obstinate kind of uh, ideological, the more rigid and doctrinaire kind of uh, free marketeers who, I, 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 I think it's getting increasingly ridiculous to kind of uh, give out the proverbial build your own Google talking point. But sure, you know, sure, Sure, as night follows day, there still are some people who are who, who are continuing to spout that. I mean, honestly, how you can still say that after what happened to Parler in January is I, I just cannot for the life of me even like pretend to fathom that at this point. I mean, after what Amazon, Apple, Google, you know, after that, after that, after that tag team kind of ganging up on Parler. Um, but um, yeah, no, look, I mean, you're totally right here. The the, the big kind of conceptual issue, um, and you know, Rachel Bovard, um, you know, I'm sure is a friend about both of ours. She's she's fabulous. She's written on this issue prolifically. There is kind of a a a strand of right of center thought that basically kind of takes that famous sentence of of, of President Ronald Reagan's, right, where he says, you know, what are the most dangerous words in the government, uh, most dangerous words in the English language, I'm here from the government, and I'm here to help, or, you know, paraphrasing whatever he exactly said. And there are some people that take that, and they basically say, well, okay, the government is kind of the end-all, be-all of all problems, therefore, uh, the, conc the conclusion in these people's minds is that private sector action cannot possibly be problematic or 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 in you know in, in case it is at least a little problematic the answer is obviously more private sector action the obvious the answer is build your own google but there was kind of a more traditional strand of conservative thought and rachel kind of spelled this out in a blog post last summer for orin cass's american compass site where she actually cites russell kirk um and you know in kind of his seminal book from the 1950s and Kirk spoke quite clearly um, that, from, that from, from his perspective, 
the threat was the accumulation of power qua power. You know, uh, what lawyers would say, the, the accumulation of, of power for the sake of exercising power. He did not particularly um, differentiate, or he was at least not, not super strict about differentiating between public and private power. They can both be deeply problematic if they're consolidated to the extent that, that they pose a threat to, uh, to our liberties, to our way of life, and so forth. So they really, I, I think over the past few years, in particular, um, as you know, as, as President Trump has kind of come in, and you know, there seems, at least from my perspective, to be a bit of a substantive kind of philosophical realignment um, of the right of center more generally. So you have that kind of in the backdrop. But obviously, kind of the more immediately pressing factor is what we were talking about: how the big tech companies are just rapidly escalating their war uh, against a free um, public square. And you do have people that I think increasingly are kind of waking up to the fact that the private sector can be, um, frankly, just as big a threat to, uh, in the 21st century, if not greater sometimes, than the public sector. And, and uh, you know, I, I, I remember kind of Tucker Carlson giving um, a monologue about this, right? It was like two years ago in 2019. Tucker, um, a lot of people gave him flack for at the time, but he said that uh, the biggest problems this uh, right now, the biggest problems are from the private sector, are from the big tech oligarchs. Um, you know, monopolists, perhaps in, in other in other sectors as well. So um, that's an ongoing debate. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, there are some kind of institutional kind of libertarian entrenched interests that will probably never be won over on this. But I, th I think we're actually winning kind of the median American on this issue, to be honest with you. I, I'm, I'm optimistic about that. I think I think you're probably right. Uh, and the but we do have in, in, in the academy and also in in I think in the judiciary and, and also in the legal profession among private practitioners, a real lack of understanding on this. And I think to some extent it might have to do with, and some people like me who came of age in higher education in the 80s, when, uh, you know, I was an economics major, I graduated in 85, and then I was in Chicago, not at Chicago, for law school at, uh, across town at Northwestern. And Law and economics was pretty much ascendant at the time. And what law and economics had taught us was that there had been so much over over eagerness to regulate economic activity under the antitrust laws at that every everything about efficiency had for had been forgotten and that and, that, and there have to be these additional tests that take modern economic thinking into account and that was a legitimate reaction to a situation where we'd gone from the the Sherman Act of 1890 and the Clayton Act of and the FTC Act of nine, both of which were 1914 which was a hell of a long time ago to where by the 70s you were breaking up companies if they had market power that could really be in the you know in sometimes in the, in the tens of percentages and we never we're, we're right at that point now where we've we think of in other words you met, you mentioned monopolistic conduct republicans were comfortable and conservatives were comfortable with regulation of business and commerce to protect free enterprise through the 1980s. 
we have to, I think, restate this as an effort to protect free speech, just as we protected free enterprise from private interests that would make either one of them impossible if they're not controlled in some fashion. Yeah, no, look, I think that I think that's exactly right. Um, you know, and, and I appreciate the shout out to Chicago as a University of Chicago law school alum. I uh, was actually just back there recently. Windy City has, uh, you know, seen some better times pre-COVID, but still still standing up at least uh, decent, decently yeah. strong, despite the mayor's best efforts to the contrary. <laughs> uh, such It was such a great city in the day, man. It was so great yeah. there. No, she, the, the city really does still have a soft spot in my heart. But um so yeah, obviously, you know, the Chicago School of Economics, Bob Bork, uh, with his with his seminal work on the antitrust paradox and kind of the development of the of the of the consumer welfare standard, which is currently being litigated uh, right before our eyes, in fact, uh, really in, in kind of both in the House Judiciary Committee and the Senate Judiciary Committee. Um antitrust is uh, I, I don't even necessarily view antitrust as uh, as a form of quote unquote regulation. Um, I, I I wouldn't kind of put it under that bucket. It's just um, interesting. It's kind of just common sense. I mean, like you have to for any institution that is in place, you kind of have to have certain guardrails um, to to kind of prevent those institutions from from going off the rail. But um, I, I guess I guess the way that I that I conceptualize it is that it's not so much trying to kind of hem in, it's kind of baked into the equation, right? Um, and and, the, and the, mm-hmm. I guess the analogy that I would make to that, um, there's there's been a lot of uh, d- debate more recently while we're talking about economic policy um, about what a like, truly conservative economic policy going forward should look like, right? So I think I mentioned uh, the American Compass Group. They're doing a lot of work on this. Um, American Affairs Journal is putting out a lot of content on this. Um, you know, Edmund Burke Foundation, mm-hmm. where I'm a research fellow, we're kind of um, of kind of the Irving Crystal two two cheers for capitalism, kind of uh, Alexander Alexander <laughs> Hamilton kind of industrial policy school of thought. So I say all that because there's kind of like an right. ongoing economic policy debate, right? Where where um, if you kind of move away from what we might call laissez-faire fundamentalism, then you really kind of have um, which includes free trade, yeah, which, which includes free trade, absolutism with China and whatnot, then you kind of have two kind of broad buckets of options, right? On the one hand, um, you can do kind of, uh, the, you know, the FDR, LBJ, you know, Scandinavian social democracy, welfare state model of, of redistribution. But the other more appealing option is to, co- is to have kind of um, rules at the outset that then channel um, market behavior towards better outcomes. Um, I, I, I actually kind of view personally antitrust as fitting into the latter. Um, I, 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 I think any rational um, company which, you know, which enters um, a system of enterprise, which sees kind of the corpus of antitrust there, um, knows that if it oversteps, um, you know, like in the case of Facebook, for example, if they get too greedy and they start acquiring all these companies like Instagram and WhatsApp, uh, and, you know, Amazon mm-hmm. with uh, everything they're doing with uh, AWS and their Amazon Basics product line, all that, then they know that the threat is there. So I kind of view it more as kind of just a, the, the rules of the game, so to speak. But I do think that it's really interesting. And I'm, I'm, I'm encouraged to see that there is kind of this reawakening, and more broadly speaking, of right of center thought, kind of waking up to, to, to antitrust. Because look, Mm-hmm. Whatever criticisms of of the GOP as a party, you know, some conservatives may or may not have, and to be clear, a lot of them are are, are certainly valid. 
But uh, antitrust really does have its origins and kind of, um, you know, in Gilded Age, capital R republicanism, right? I mean, obviously, we're familiar with Teddy Roosevelt. Josh Hawley wrote a kind of a glowing biography of Teddy Roosevelt years ago. Um, he has his new book, mm -hmm. Tyranny of Big Tap, that talks about Teddy Roosevelt a lot. Um, and, you know, re Republican presidents historically have not been complete kind of anti-antitrust zealots. And I, I, I look specifically, I, I just take kind of one concrete example here in contemporary times. I look at like Senator Mike Lee of Utah. After my first year of law school um, at Chicago, I actually was a Senate Judiciary Committee law clerk. So, you know, effectively kind of a legal intern for Senator Lee. Um, I, I, at the time, he, he was antitrust subcommittee uh, ranking member, which I think actually is his exact title today. Um, and it wasn't obvious to me at that time that, you know, Senator Lee, who certainly has a very strong libertarian streak, it wasn't obvious to me that there was such thing as kind of a merger that he would think skeptically of on antitrust grounds. But he has been, you know, allying with Amy Klobuchar nowadays on, on the Senate Judiciary Committee. I mean, he, he and kind of his colleague, mm -hmm. or his corollary, I should say, Ken Buck on the House Judiciary Committee, they're kind of out there actively rethinking yeah. ways to reshape antitrust. So there's just so much intellectual vitality on this issue. And I, I, I really do find it quite encouraging. It has to happen. And the problem is that, that the sort of right of where we live, right of center Twitter, as you've described it, doesn't really fairly reflect that reality. Uh, it, and it's a difficult thing. You know, Twitter is not a particularly subtle place to have particularly subtle co conversations about complex issues. But people, you know, Reagan, the Ronald Reagan moment, you know, Reagan remains the sort of, uh, you know, you mentioned him a couple minutes ago, the uh, the gold standard of conservative politicians. And Donald Trump didn't really enunciate anything like a real ideology. He stood for a lot of things, but he, it wasn't a particularly complex or well-developed theory of, of economic policy going forward. You've got the antitrust issue on the one hand, and you know I, th I think you're probably aware that, that, that Will and I wrote, uh, I guess it's going back two years ago, the consumer welfare issue, which, which of course consumer welfare is always rolled into antitrust consideration, consumer, what's the efficiency and how do we maximize benefit for consumers without killing the goose that lays the golden egg? And I, you know, I think people are, I think we're going to have to, and then this is where the, F, the Federal Trade Commission comes in. So you, you, there's, no, there's unquestionably going to be a, a swinging of the pendulum. So, I, you know, I referred to, to the progressive era, and as you point out, it was absolutely something that Republicans like Teddy Roosevelt were very comfortable with. They would have argued, my job here is to save capitalism from socialism, which was a very, not the socialism of today's college campus kiddies, but real socialism being, you know, fought over by real workers who actually worked in factories and were very, very influenced by what was going on in Europe. The, the idea was let's save capitalism or free enterprise, which is really a better word for it, from itself. So you have these rules of the road. On the one hand, there's the top down, which is what will we prevent companies from, from doing with each other. And then on the other hand, there's just looking at what happens to consumers and whether they are being victimized by deceptive practices. 
And what Will and I wrote about was that Section 230 would actually seem to shake hands with that because it requires, forget about the platform publisher piece. That's all about third-party liability. It's so not a it's no so not what we're what we're worried about here. What we're worried about here is when censorship takes place, when private censorship takes place on a social media platform, what just what, what is it that inoculates that company other than nostrums about it's a it, you know free enterprise free every company in the world, every company in America is regulated heavily. Every industry is regulated heavily compared to 100 years ago, compared to 50 years ago. What is it that says we can't regulate the conduct of Facebook and Twitter? Section 230, but not the part of Section 230 everyone thinks it is, but rather the part that says that they can, uh, th th that an operator of a an internet service provider is permitted to restrict or uh, cut off access to its services to any user, essentially to manage those kinds of rules of the road, using that term again that you did in, in the antitrust context, on one condition, that it does so in good faith. We're so past good faith at this point. So to some extent, one of the things that I'm a little bit annoyed about, I'd like to hear your view on this is, there's a lot of talk about new law and changing Section 230 and state-based statutes. I believe very strongly, and I've written a, a rather detailed version of the article that Will and I did on this topic in, in Human Events, that existing Federal Trade Commission authority, as well as the mini FTC acts of the various states, authorizes law enforcement and private rights of action against the platforms for what are essentially just um, deceptive practices. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, and we're, you know, we're seeing that, uh, we're, or we're seeing kind of Ron DeSantis pick up that mantle, right? He's kind of, um, I guess, the, he's kind of the tip of the spear of this exact thing. It's funny, you know, um, I, for a while, I, I, I was of counsel at, at First Liberty Institute, um, which does fantastic religious liberty litigation for, for all faiths. And, you know, um, one of the lawyers there, well, you know, won't say a precise name, but, um, you know, I remember he, he called me and was like, you have a second, and he just had to get something off his chest, and it, was, it, had, it had nothing to do with religious liberty. And uh, this was this was a while ago. I mean, this was um, this was well over a year ago at this point. And he basically said to me, he said, "Why are we not addressing the tech issue as just old old school consumer fraud?" And like, I I, I paused. I was like, "Wow, that is so logical and so and so common sense." So, you know, uh, great minds you know great minds think alike, as they say, right? Um, so that's. I think that's exactly the right way to go about this at the state level. Um, you know, um, we saw, uh, you know, I, Clarence Thomas kind of uh, dropped a footnote at the end of that kind of epic uh, concurrence uh, last month. Um, I, if, if I recall, he had a footnote about the intersection of Section 230 and, and, and consumer fraud. I might be misremembering, but I think that's what the footnote was about there. Um, so I, I absolutely do think that that is kind of the future of, um, of big tech 
uh, I, again, I, I kind of sometimes am reluctant to even use the term regulation, but kind of uh, reining it in. It's kind of like the tip of the, of, of the state level spear of, of reining in big tech. Are these consumer protection uh, statutes um, kind of uh, really just kind of using the common law tradition, which kind of brings me to kind of a slightly broader point. And it's a point um, that on a separate podcast uh, for which I actually recorded an episode earlier today, that's uh, the Edmundberg Foundation's NatCon's blog podcast. You know, uh, Rachel Bovar and I make this point in that podcast all the time. And the point here is that the tools for the present moment from a conservative perspective are there, they are in the conservative tradition. And I think this fraud, this consumer protection kind of statute, this paradigm is a pristine, brilliant example of it. The tools for the moment are there. What we have to do, I think, is take a kind of more historically informed, uh, less kind of narrowly blinkered view of what, uh, of what are the appropriate means um, to achieve necessary ends. And, and, and to be clear, I am not uh, necessarily saying that, uh, you know, uh, all means are, are, are on the table to achieve an end. That's kind of Saul Alinsky 101. That's not my stance. But I, but, I, but, I, but I think if you take kind of a longer view of the conservative tradition, going back to kind of like the original thinkers, of course, of, of this tradition, people like Edmund Burke, then you, you, you do see that there was a slightly greater willingness to free yourself mm-hmm. from dogmatic ideology and to um, uh, to consider more tools to uh, to achieve kind of uh, justice, human flourishing, and the common good, which, as far as I see it, are kind of the traditional goals of the conservative. And here, um, justice, human flourishing, and the common good cannot possibly be achieved with the big tech companies in their current state. There's just no way whatsoever here, right? Um, so at the state level, um, you know, I, with that kind of slightly uh, more abstruse rant over, I mean, at the state level, yes, these consumer um, consumer fraud, consumer protection, I think that is absolutely the way to go. At the federal level, um, honestly, like I, I mentioned earlier, the, um, the, the the coordinated assault against New York Post, um, I, I to, to, to this day, Ron, I I, I still like. <laughs> I feel like I was dreaming when that was happening. The New York Post, uh, the oldest continually operating newspaper in the country, founded by Alexander Hamilton, fourth largest circulation of any paper, was locked out of its own Twitter account for two weeks. I think it was technically 15 or 16 days for reporting that to this day has not been discredited at all, at all. Um, so I, I remember at that time, the very first blog post about it that I wrote basically said that I think um, where this ship is headed as far as kind of reigning in big tech is ultimately going to be kind of common carrier regulation. And I, I was really pleased to see um, Justice Thomas kind of lay that out there last month, because I, I do continue to think at a federal level, that's mm-hmm. the most likely place. Um, but, you know, I, antitrust is extremely important. Um, and, and I'm very grateful for those you know, like Senator Hawley, uh, a, a literal scholar of, of President Teddy Roosevelt, for instance, who's kind of bringing, you know, trying to make antitrust great again, so to speak, in the eyes of, of a right of center that, um, you know, that properly construed should appreciate uh, antitrust. You mentioned in your, in the public discourse article, where you introduce your concept of, of the, uh, the common good, that I've quoted now that the, the, the a coalition has to be developed and that coalition has to be cognizant of the left's ever ascendant hegemony over a near monopoly on institutions of meaningful cultural and economic clout. That means to a large extent what we're talking about, which is the 
the ability to communicate ideas that have political significance and cultural significance. But then there are the institutions of culture themselves. And obviously we're not, you know, I, I promise not to keep you much more than half an hour. So I, uh, this would take us days to talk about, but the issue of, cult, of, of, of change of the culture itself. I think this is one of the most troubling areas for, and here we can just ask the libertarians to just quietly leave the room. But cultural conservatives are really at a wit's end here because we cannot and don't want to return to an era of, well, certainly not a, a, a theocracy. People don't believe what they believed during the glory days of European civilization, uh, uh, if, if indeed we recognize it as such. They say, you often hear people saying on Twitter and elsewhere that ultimately it comes down to culture. If we might move the chairs around on the deck of the of the regulatory Titanic here, but if we if we don't make inroads in the culture, is it going to matter? So this is kind of one of the longest running debates in the modern conservative movement, right? Is whether you know culture is downstream of politics, whether politics is downstream of culture. You know, Andrew Breitbart famously, um, you know, may, may, may his memory be a blessing, but Andrew Breitbart famously said that politics is downstream of culture. Um, to me, I, I think that's half right. Um, I do think I do think it's a two-way arrow. Um, I certainly do think that politics can affect culture. In fact, I think actually kind of um, the same-sex marriage issue was actually a good example of that. that they, to me, that really did seem to be kind of a symbiotic two-way arrow. In fact, uh, I, can't, I, I can't remember if it was Massachusetts or Hawaii. I think it was Massachusetts was the first state to kind of declare a, a state constitutional right to same-sex marriage. And at the time that that happened, you know, it was, it, was, it was a bit of a fringe issue, but the polling really, really, really after that, I think if you go back and look at kind of the detailed year over year polling, really did start to kind of pick up and accentuate it or, or accelerate a little bit, I should say. And um, more generally, there's kind of a, you know, there's kind of a newer strand of thought here. Uh, it's kind of, you know, the Saurabh Amari kind of school of thought that the state really can be used um, to kind of uh, get people to kind of shift their preferences uh, at the margin, you know, um, there's a, oh gosh, um, who was the legal scholar who, who said this? Um, uh, it, was, it was Cass Sunstein, who's no one's idea of a conservative, who's, who's no one's idea of a conservative, to be clear. <laughs> um, but but uh, Cass Sunstein actually, I think he coined the phrase libertarian paternalism, which is kind of this notion that you can kind of uh, deregulate after the the government and any uh, you know in any type of regulatory regime um, puts its thumb on the scale to kind of uh, at the outset and then from there you can kind of deregulate um, and uh, that's kind of sort of the culture is downstream of politics school of thought so in any event I I do think that kind of taking um, Andrew Breitbart's maxim to its logical conclusion has actually done a lot of harm on the American right over the over, over the past 10 15 20 years. Um, that's not to say that we can sacrifice culture. That is very much not my standpoint. I do think we need to kind of fight, uh, especially at kind of the local level, whether it's for a school board to kind of get rid of this wokeness, this critical race theory nonsense. But my basic pitch for um, how culture can be downstream of politics is that I, I basically look at the chessboard. I look at the, at the map across America right now. And, you know, you quote my public discourse article. I, I, I can't think of a single institution of major cultural clout in America 
where conservatives or even just the broader right of center defined broadly more generally has anything remotely resembling power. Instead, the only institutions where we have any kind of power right now are political institutions. Uh, you know, it's, it's still a 50-50 United States Senate. Republicans will probably take back the House next year. The GOP is still uh, stronger than the Democratic Party at, at, at the state level, primarily. So that really, I think, and, and, and here's the beauty of the political um, electoral process in America more generally. The beauty of it is that cancel culture, by definition, cannot work there. They cannot keep conservatives from running for office unless they want to end this experiment in self-government, This unless they want to end this experiment in lowercase r republicanism to begin with. If they want to do that, then we're having an entirely different conversation. Well, they, they don't seem to be too shy about, about that. Again, beyond the, beyond today's scope. For sure. But, but I, 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 you know, all I'm trying to say is, as long as we are going to continue to have elections, the right of center will be able to compete in that discussion in a way that the cancel culture, the big tech oligarchs, woke capital, in a way that it seems they are increasingly trying to deprive us in any number of quote unquote private sector institutions. So I do think that we should be really, um, we, I think we have to kind of um, enwoken ourselves, so to speak, to the notion of possibly using the levers of state power to try to affect culture. But we obviously, we obviously cannot abandon culture. It's just very much a two-way arrow, I think. Well, I thank you for the cultural enrichment that you have uh, provided to listeners of the Coleman Nation podcast today. And uh, you're all over the place, Josh, and I'm glad to have gotten a piece of you uh, on the way to wherever it is you're going. You're doing great stuff, and I, I hope to hear more about it. And uh, I'll, I'll be looking out for you. And I'm very grateful for your joining us on the podcast today. And um, keep up the great work. Thanks so much for having me, Ron. It was a, it was a real pleasure. So long. Thanks a lot. Hey, thank you for listening to the Coleman Nation podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. For more information, please visit the show's website at coleman-nation.com. That's coleman-nation.com. Or you can visit my blog at likelihoodofconfusion.com. Join us next time on the Coleman Nation podcast and have a great day.